Hello and welcome to the recording of the debate on the US nuclear sharing arrangement in Europe with Pia Furhap, Alexander Matlar and Jacek Dukalec. My name is Marina Henke. I'm a professor of international relations at the Herdy School and the director of the Center for International Security. The event took place on May 4th, 2021, and was part of our project on nuclear security funded by the Stanton Foundation. If you enjoy this recording, please let us know and subscribe to our newsletter. Welcome. I'm absolutely delighted to see so many people joining. This is the third event in our series on nuclear security in Europe, which is funded by the Stanton Foundation and part of our research project at the Center, Understanding Nuclear Assurance, Deterrence and Escalation in Europe. Our first event looked at the escalates to de-escalate challenge. In our second event, we examined arms control and tonight's discussion will focus on the future of NATO's nuclear sharing arrangement in Europe. As many of you know, the United States has currently some 200 nuclear weapons deployed in Europe. This is, of course, not a new arrangement, but dates back to the Cold War, when indeed many more U.S. nuclear warheads were stationed on European soil. But this arrangement has come under pressure in recent years, and one of the countries where this pressure is certainly mounting is Germany. So what we would like to do today is discuss with experts whether this pressure is justified. Does something need to change or should we leave things as they are? And we have an absolutely terrific panel to discuss this question. So let me briefly introduce our speakers. And I must say, I'm truly delighted that we could win three top specialists in this area of research. So first we have Pia Furhap. She joins us from Berlin, from the office um, of the um, EFSH, the Institute for Peace Research and Security Policy of the University of Hamburg, and she directs the Berlin office of that institute. And prior to her appointment as director, she served as foreign policy advisor to Omid Nuripur, who was a member of the German Bundestag. She has also held research positions with the Stiftung Wissenschaft and Politik and worked as a consultant for the German Ministry for Development and International Cooperation. Next, we have Alexander Matelar. He's a professor and vice dean of research at the Institute for European Studies at the Vrije Universiteit in Brussels. And he's also a senior research fellow at Egmont, the Royal Belgian Institute for International Relations. And he sits on the scientific committee of the Belgian Royal Higher Institute for Defense. His Research interests include the politics of European integration, transatlantic relations and NATO, and defense policymaking. And last, but certainly not least, we have Jacek Durkalek. He is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Security Research at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in the United States. And he's also affiliated with the Center for International Security and Cooperation, CSAC, at Stanford University. Prior to joining Lawrence Livermore, he was a research analyst at the Polish Institute of International Affairs and also served as a staff member in the Missile Defense Office of the Polish Ministry of National Defense. And I will now give the floor to Pia, who is going to start us off. Thank you again, everyone. Um, thank you to Heriti for the invitation to speak today. Um, I know we are here to offer diverging perspectives, but in rereading 
words from my colleagues, I think we have a common point that I would like to point out. NATO's nuclear policies are often a bit of a touchy subject, a difficult and a touchy one. Um, and that is a reason to debate them more and not um, sweep the differences under the carpet. And I think Hertie's own research project and this um, discussion is really a good effort in that regard. That said, let me make four brief points why I think NATO should strive to end the practice of nuclear sharing and, and, and maybe end a bit on how it could do so without risking alliance unity. My first point is NATO should start the process of reform and possibly ending nuclear sharing because these weapons have almost no military relevance. Um, proponents usually argue that NATO could use these dual capable aircraft in a Russian blackmail scenario. In this case, Russia would prevent a decisive NATO answer to a sub-regional conflict or invasion by holding the whole of Europe um, at risk with the threat of either conventional or nuclear strikes. In such a scenario, the DCA are sort of a symbol of the US commitment to defend Europe, as we have just heard, and, um, and also of the ultimate vulnerability of Russian territory. I think that's really not the best argument to make. At least the German tornadoes would really have a hard time reaching Russian territory, given the need to refuel the aircraft outside of the reach of um, Russian air defense systems. So where would we hit a target and would NATO be willing to do so in such a scenario? Secondly, to make sort of use of these aircrafts in a crisis for deterrence and signal purposes, they have to be ready to be used. And at least um, up until 2019, NATO stated that the readiness of these aircrafts is no longer a matter of minutes, as it was the case in the Cold War, but a matter of weeks and months. So what do you do with an aircraft that you need weeks and months to assemble um, for it to start flying and signal something? At least I have a lot of question marks. And last but not least, at the beginning of this year, um, experts from the Federation of American Scientists pointed out that the number of these B-61 bombs has even gone down from the 150s that you just pointed out to probably 100. Um, and I think that has gone fairly unnoticed and it didn't you know, produce a gigantic outcry as you would assume if these weapons were so important to NATO's deterrence. Um, so that's my first point. My second point is, it's often said that nuclear sharing serves the purpose of increasing NATO's cohesion. And I think that is only true if you discard public opinion, particularly in host nations on these issues. Um, public opinion polls consistently show a disapproval of the nuclear sharing arrangement, particularly in the host nations. In Belgium, only a very thin parliamentary majority of eight votes secured the continuation of nuclear sharing, and there's widespread opposition in Germany and the Netherlands. And I think that matters for NATO. It matters for NATO as a democratic alliance. Um, I think that in the face of the threats that NATO certainly faces from Russia, that's something I wouldn't deny. NATO unity is very important, and probably that's also something that I can agree on with my co-panelists. And that should be a reason why NATO should strive for a defense posture that has public backing um, and is not prone to unilateral changes. My third point is that I have some question marks about the extent to which at least the active participation in forward deployment gives allies a special say um, in NATO and nuclear, uh, in US nuclear policies. So all allies are part of the nuclear planning group. And I think the degree to which there is a special influence um, 
depends less on us having these few gravity bombs, but more on the general willingness of a US administration to consult um, with allies on these issues. So these are the three reasons why I'm a bit skeptical that we need to stick to the status quo. And I want to end just briefly on how NATO could reform nuclear sharing. Just two general points. I think thinking about the end of nuclear sharing should be part of a new thinking of how do we restrike the balance between defense and arms control. Um, It's not only this issue, it's part of a bigger conversation. And I think we have sort of three windows of opportunities why that's actually a good time to debate it now. The first is NATO is giving itself a new strategic concept and any reform of nuclear sharing should be a joint decision, not a unilateral decision within the alliance. Secondly, you have a Biden administration on the record wanting to reduce the role of nuclear weapons for US policy and then hopefully also for NATO policy. And you will have follow-up discussions between the US and Russia um, after New START, possibly including all nuclear weapons. So NATO should get ahead and be proactive and sort of think of concrete and reciprocal and binding arms control measures that it wants Russia to take in order to be able to reform its nuclear sharing arrangements. And I can go into more detail about that later. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pia. So then we have next Alexander, please. Thank you very much, Marina. Uh, It's a pleasure to uh, join you all in this um, Herty virtual uh, event. I'm delighted to have uh, the opportunity to uh, exchange some thoughts on uh, NATO's nuclear sharing arrangements, because these arrangements, they operationalize the way in which NATO as an alliance maintains a posture of nuclear deterrence. And that generates some confusion because one can have a general debate on uh, the legitimacy from an ethical or moral perspective of nuclear deterrence as a uh, matter of principle. And one can have a a more specific debate on the extent to which um, nuclear sharing arrangements, uh, if one accepts nuclear deterrence, serve their purpose in the alliance framework. So in my uh, remarks, I would perhaps first offer a sort of preliminary caveat why I think nuclear deterrence is actually difficult to avoid in defense policy. And then I'll offer some uh, brief comments on the relative merits of the nuclear sharing arrangements uh, as they exist today. Now, to be fully frank, I have every respect for um, uh, people who object to nuclear deterrence um, on the basis of ethical considerations. I think nuclear deterrence can also be uh, thought of as something that is in line with with ethics. Um, But I I fully get uh, that if we are having that debate, we can have just fundamentally different conclusions. My point is, it is very hard to devise defense strategies that deal with nuclear armed adversaries without relying on nuclear deterrence oneself, absolutely. I think it is possible to come up with defense strategies that minimize the reliance on nuclear deterrence. One can put the emphasis on conventional forces, on mastering technology, 
on, on cyber, you name it, but there is always a sort of residual nuclear factor uh, remaining. And I think that is uh, why, as uh, the, uh, the alliance agreed language goes, as long as nuclear weapons exist, NATO will remain a nuclear alliance. Disarmament comes from uh, all, all nuclear weapon states moving along uh, together uh, in the direction of cutting uh, the reliance on, on nuclear weapons even further. So let me then uh, turn to the nuclear sharing debate in particular, where I think we need to consider uh, three claims. Uh, first, that nuclear sharing uh, obviates uh, the need for allies to uh, develop more nuclear arsenals of their own, the non-proliferation discussion. Second, the, um, uh, the decision-making uh, conundrum, uh, nuclear sharing to some extent multilateralizes uh, the debate on NATO's nuclear posture. And then thirdly, uh, I'll uh, wrap up with some comments on the specific military functions of the nuclear sharing arrangements, because I do disagree with Pia's argument that they have no military relevance uh, whatsoever. Now, starting with a, with a historical argument on, on non-proliferation, this obviously uh, was something that came about in a different time frame after the UK and France developed their, their arsenals. The question is, if extended deterrence, which is now made materially credible by nuclear sharing, if we switch back to um, just a theoretical promise of extended deterrence, would all European allies feel as comfortable with that? I actually think they would not, not all of them, especially as you go eastwards on the European continent. The second argument on um, the, the decision-making apparatus, Pia has, an, has a fair point. It obviously depends somewhat on the willingness of the US to uh, involve its allies, but the, uh, the fact remains that the formal NATO nuclear posture gets shaped by the nuclear planning group on the basis of consensus. And it are those member states, those allies that actually have something to contribute to the operational posture that gets to have a say uh, in, in practical terms. Those who are not involved at all, they can say something, but they cannot take decisions uh, affecting their own portion. Turning to the third argument about the military role, dual capable aircraft are by excellence uh, a signaling instrument uh, in nuclear deterrence. And nuclear deterrence is also about communication. I fully take the criticism that the German Tornado fleet is perhaps not completely up to date, actually a bit subpar below where some of the other allies involved are. Uh, but that really means it's, it's time to up the game and make sure that the, the military relevance gets, uh, gets secured. But I think the more fundamental point in terms of military relevance is that in very far-fetched scenarios, it actually enables allies to defend themselves if it comes to it. Uh, and that is particularly relevant when we are talking about thinking of possible responses to very limited non-strategic nuclear weapons use against uh, NATO allies. I'll wrap up here. I do not think that everything should always stay the same because technology changes, the world itself changes. 
we can have debates about uh, um, about new types of delivery systems. We need to have a, a serious debate about the political dimension of the alliance and cyber defense in particular. But I also think it makes sense, uh, given that we are talking about the fundamental national security uh, of, uh, uh, of, of all allies, to engage in these debates very carefully uh, and think through their ultimate consequences. I'll leave it at that and look forward to the remainder of the discussion. Thank you, Alex. Wonderful. Jacek, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Marina. And it's really a great pleasure to, to speak in this panel. And I'm very happy to see so many familiar faces during our uh, meeting. So uh, just, just a short disclaimer. So uh, what I say represent only my personal views uh, and uh, doesn't necessarily reflect the views of the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, just to, just to make it uh, clear. And, uh, in my uh, presentation, I will focus on uh, how the current nuclear sharing arrangements uh, can be updated, can be uh, strengthened. So let me, let me start by, by underscoring uh, what, what uh, Alexander, Alexander said, that I do not see the nuclear sharing arrangements uh, as, as uh, obsolete. And I think that they play an uh, indispensable role in demonstrating that uh, nuclear coercion or nu nuclear attack against uh, one ally would be faced uh, by the entire NATO. So not only by a targeted ally and free NATO nuclear powers. And uh, this is, uh, I think what, what should be underscored, uh, this is achieved uh, not only by the role of some uh, European countries in hosting US nuclear weapons and, uh, and by European dual capable aircraft, but also by non-nuclear support to, to nuclear uh, mission, what of course uh, includes uh, the, the, the so-called snowcat missions uh, in which allied fighters uh, escort dual capable aircraft uh, if called for a for a nuclear uh, mission uh, and uh, to remain fit for purpose uh, nato nuclear sharing arrangements have to constant, constantly adapt to uh, changing uh, security requirements uh, and uh, they have to retain not only their political value of signaling uh, of signaling nato's cohesion and resolve uh, but also military value. So a potential aggressor must believe that gravity bombs delivered by uh, DCA will uh, reach their uh, targets. And uh, uh, in recent years, the Alliance has, has made progress in these uh, areas. And uh, of course, it was in, in response to, to, to citing NATO Warsaw Summit communique, uh, Russia's irresponsible and aggressive nuclear rhetoric, military concept, and uh, uh, underlying uh, posture. Uh, uh, we can talk more about it, but but let me focus on uh, uh, what more mo what more can be can be done. So uh, I have three points to 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 make. Uh, first, uh, to remain effective, nuclear sharing arrangements have to be an integral uh, element of NATO overall strategy uh, to counter uh, what we call uh, Russia's theory of, of victory. Uh, that is. Moscow's approach to securing its interest in peacetime competition, uh, in peacetime competition crisis and war. And uh, we cannot think about nuclear sharing arrangement in, in separation from broader NATO's toolkit to counter, to counter Russia's uh, destabilizing uh, actions. And uh, uh, to do so, I think we have to first put uh, our intellectual house uh, in, in, in order. So we have to invest greater effort in better understanding how nuclear weapons fit into Russia's approach to escalation, de-escalation and uh, uh, war fighting. And based on that, uh, we need to 
further upgrade our concepts uh, on how nuclear sharing arrangements uh, contribute to not only NATO's approach to peacetime competition and deterrence, but also uh, escalation management and restoring deterrence uh, if it if it if it fails. And uh, I think that analytical analytical methods such as uh, wargaming and uh, or, or net assessment could be could be uh, quite useful in, in pushing our thinking uh, uh, forward. And uh, uh, second point, I think that despite progress made made so far, uh, NATO's effective communication of, of resolve uh, to face nuclear risks remain a, a challenge. And in particular, there is a growing need for the alliance political leaders to engage in public dialogue about the value of nuclear sharing arrangements and, uh, as Alexander said, related ethical, political and military uh, aspects, uh, and also, as, as Pia said, related uh, arms control uh, goals. And uh, I, I think that there are some good examples, including, for example, the public uh, remarks of, of German and Belgi Belgian defense ministers. And but still, most, more, more needs to be to be done. And uh, if the alliance leaders do not speak up, the the and, and strategic community do not speak up, I think the information vacuum would be filled either by Russia or uh, supporters of, of uh, the, the Treaty of, of Prohibition of, of Nuclear Weapons. And uh, my, my third and, and last point, uh, uh, which, is, which is about uh, uh, capabilities. I think that we have to be clear-eyed that because of Russia's heavy investments in integrated air and missile defense, uh, the number of scenarios in which nuclear gravity bombs uh, delivered by DCA uh, can effectively reach their targets is, is, is shrinking. Uh, also, Russia's heavy investments in, in dual-capable long-range precision strike systems create questions about on-the-ground survivability of, of uh, uh, DCA. And uh, one may argue that investment in uh, new air-launch nuclear standoff missiles uh, delivered by uh, DCA may provide a, a, a solution. Uh, however, uh, for technical and political reasons, such capabilities will most likely not be available in the next decades. Also, standoff missiles would not eliminate the problem of on-the-ground survivability of DCA. And I think that instead of focusing on new and shiny objects, the focus should be on how to enable the more effective nuclear, nuclear mission based on current, currently planned capabilities. So, fully modernized DCA and B61. And what is needed is so-called, or, or, or could be called the system approach to strengthening effectiveness of NATO nuclear sharing arrangements. So the approach that on the one hand will reinforce nuclear burden sharing, and on the other hand, will strengthen NATO's conventional deterrence and conventional capabilities. And uh, this can be done through reinforcing of, of current of, of uh, non-nuclear support to to current uh, nuclear uh, mission. Uh, for example, uh, non-nuclear allies can invest more in multi-domain capabilities, aircraft for conventional escort and and support, uh, cyber capabilities, electronic warfare capabilities, but also long-range conventional air or even ground-launch uh, missiles. Uh, also, NATO allies uh, should invest more in integrated air and missile defense systems uh, to defend key NATO political and military infrastructure, including nuclear capable uh, bases. And uh, 
last but not, not least, uh, nuclear sharing arrangement can be strengthened by realistic strategic level and operational level exercises on NATO response to aggression by a nuclear armed uh, adversary. So uh, if we want to things to, to stay uh, as they are, I think uh, a lot of a lot needs to needs to change, but a lot needs to change, uh, I think, around the current current nuclear sharing arrangements, not necessarily the arrangements uh, themselves. And uh, I will stop here. Thank you so much, Jacek. I thought that was very insightful. Let me ask the first question. And I would like to build it on one of the comments that Pia mentioned. Pia said political argument that is very often made is that NATO needs nuclear sharing for cohesion purposes. But then Pia said, well, actually, if you take public opinion into account, it doesn't necessarily create cohesion. It creates maybe even an unraveling of NATO because the publics no longer support the nuclear sharing arrangement and thus more and more feel a distance between their own preferences and what NATO is doing. So I would like to ask this question to Jacek and also to Alex. So let's look at the Polish population, if I, if I may say, or the Eastern European populations. How, and of course this is hypothetical, but how would you say, would they react if, for example, Germany exited the nuclear sharing arrangement, or if there was an open debate of exiting? And then as well, Alex, you know, what's your point on this tension between NATO cohesion at the elite level, and then public opinion that is granted in significant NATO members, member states quite opposed to it. But let's start with uh, Jacek. Sure, thanks, 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 Marina. And I, I think that's a, a great, great question. So first of all, I think that, you know, the, the, the fact that uh, uh, some countries play a role in, uh, you know, uh, hosting nuclear weapons in, in, in Europe is seen by the other countries, which for, for different reasons don't have such a role as, uh, you know, something reassuring that, you know, if, there is be or, or or if there would be kind of a nuclear coercion or 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 crisis, then uh, you know countries like Poland and not only can also rely uh, on 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 support for you know from from countries such as uh, Germany, which uh, uh, because of nuclear sharing arrangements can during the crisis uh, signal its sort of a, its if its its involvement that that you know it it would not uh, abandon its its allies. So. It's, it's, it plays an, an important role, but with regards to, 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 to the public and, and the public attitude to uh, nuclear sharing arrangements, uh, I, I'm, I, I'm not sure and I uh, think that more should be done to kind of engage public and make public more informed because uh, the question is to what extent uh, the, the opinion polls really reflect the, the views of, of, of uh, people who really know what nuclear sharing arrangements are against what kind of threats they can play a role and what role they can play in kind of a broader sort of NATO approach to, to deterrence and, and defense. And I think in recent years, some progress has been made and I'm really kind of feel reassured when you know, German defense ministers is, 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 is speaking about the importance of, of this arrangement, the, 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 the Belgian defense minister. I think that when, for example, um, kind of a more public and, and, and transparent about its own actions, for example, nuclear exercises, I think this kind of a place 
is, is, is important in kind of uh, reassuring the public, but also we haven't kind of, uh, I haven't noticed any sort of a public backlash after public statements about, about um, nuclear sharing arrangements by, by NATO leaders. What may kind of uh, demonstrate that actually the more we speak about, about them, perhaps the, the public kind of a, might, might be kind of a more convinced about, about uh, their, their, their value. But we cannot do it without, without trying. So if I may rephrase this, you would basically say that her argument that public opinion doesn't necessarily lead to cohesion is not entirely accurate because there's a lack of information, a lack of understanding. And if we were more transparent and more open, we could actually bring the public on board. Is this uh, correct? I, I think that at least as at least some some segments of the of the public, because I, I I'm uh, aware that we cannot convince convince uh, everyone, but uh, at least by uh, being kind of a more public, more talking about it, we can we can make the debate about nuclear sharing arrangements more more informed. Mm -hmm. What do you think, um, uh, Alex? What's your opinion on this, on the public opinion component? Well, the question is, of course, where does the public really stand? Um, you need uh, lots of in-depth uh, debate for getting there. And that is what we haven't had uh, yet. And I, I do welcome the notion that was already put forward that if this is becoming salient again, we need to discuss it. And those policymakers who are then in favor should also yeah, defend uh, that position and argue, uh, offer their arguments uh, for it. But in, in the Belgian context, Uh, we recently had a, a substantial uh, discussion in Parliament uh, on uh, a resolution uh, proposing to join the, the treaty uh, prohibiting nuclear weapons, the ban treaty. And when it actually came to uh, the plenary, there was no uh, majority for that. Uh, the, the majority uh, spoke against that proposal precisely because the, uh, the, the Belgian position in the nuclear sharing arrangements and NATO solidarity, actually deep down are, are supported uh, by um, a large number of, of parliamentarians. And I think if we engage with the audience in, in substantive terms, it is, uh, it is easy to say, well, this is not popular, uh, so we'll, uh, we'll just get rid of it. It's a difficult topic. Uh, yes, but um, the the more challenging discussion is, well, we are sort of um, finding ourselves with much of the population waking up from, from a peacetime mindset and coming to terms with the environment, with the strategic uh, environment that um, as Europeans, we are increasingly finding ourselves in with Yeah, growing concerns about um, uh, about our relative security, our relative uh, ability to uh, to protect our our prosperity, and and so on and so forth. This will, by necessity, unfold in the different national contexts uh, of uh, of democratic uh, politics. Um, but different allies have uh, much to learn from those debates. Uh, across uh, across borders uh, uh, as well, because decisions in in one ally will impact um, the situation in in other allies too, um, and it is uh, there. I think also a bit easy to just look at public opinion in 
those allies that are geographically quite comfortable um, with respect to current uh, current security risks and yeah, not take public opinion in the geographically more exposed allies into account. Yeah, I would like to give you the opportunity to respond if you want, you know, to the argument that even the German public, I assume, is not informed enough to actually be fully taken into account in these kind of decisions. I'll make three quick points. I'm all for transparency. And I don't think that it was the opposition to nuclear sharing that has prevented transparency and education on these arrangements, but rather the people who promoted it so far. So I'm all for it. Um, and I think it's an interesting question and really one up sort of for empirical, uh, it's an empirical question whether that will actually change um, public opinion on it, yes or no. The second point I wanted to make is, I think it was even Alexander Zorg, who was with the Healthy School, who shared an interesting thread on Twitter a couple of days ago on these opinion polls and how good are they made. But one could even see that even in countries where we would not expect it, such as Poland, um, you find a majority of people that don't uh, answer a question specifically on nuclear sharing, but that they point out that they don't feel protected by nuclear weapons arrangements the way we have them now. So I think um, a lot more needs to be done really in terms of proper um, public opinion research. And I, I would assume that we're up for a lot of interesting results. Um, and the last point I want to make that is dear to my heart is I think if we talk about upping the IQ of politicians or the public on these arrangements, this is not only about the value that nuclear sharing has for deterrence, but this is also about educating the public about, for example, the humanitarian consequences of the use of nuclear weapons. So I think I'm all for transparency, but then I think we will have to bring a lot of arguments on the table. All of you mentioned arms control, uh, but at the same time, we see Putin um, investing very heavily uh, in uh, nuclear forces, modernizing them, diversifying them. So I would like to get from each one of you kind of a, a more detailed logic on how nuclear sharing could somehow be linked to arms control and what your theory um, is and how this could lead to arms control that you know um, each one of you actually mentioned. Maybe we can start with uh, Pia. So I think, um, I don't think that sort of holding out the carrot of negotiating away nuclear sharing is the biggest carrot we have um, when we talk about arms control with Russia. But I think in the context of, you know, how, how do we Europeans think about possible um, negotiations between the US and Russia in which we would talk about all nuclear weapons, deployed, non-deployed, strategic, non-strategic. Russia has long held the position that it's going to talk about its um, own bigger arsenal in that regard, only if Europe and the United States would be willing to talk about its own one. And that's going to be sort of a gigantic, it's, it's a tiny part of a huge package. But since we are in the process of spending money on the modernization of these arrangements, that's also a signal. Um, maybe we could talk about, um, Oliver Meyer and Uli and I have suggested about a freeze. Let's say, okay, we're willing to talk. Um, we're not going to continue modernizing. We're not going to procure new aircraft. We have very concrete 
suggestions on what we will get from the Russian side in return. Um, and then see if that is possible. But I, th I think uh, Stephen Pfeiffer's in the in the virtual room too has very strong opinions on that. Um, we will not have the time to bring him in. But sometimes I find that the European, that our European discussion about the future of nuclear sharing and the German discussion in particular is a bit detached um, from the American thinking, and that is never a really good sign. Okay, um, Jacek, arms control and nuclear sharing. Oh. I think you know that uh, when it comes to, to, to arms control, uh, maybe more generally, it takes it takes uh, two to tango. And uh, you know, uh, over the last uh, decade, you know, there have been kind of a push to to, to kind of a, or or um, NATO NATO activities to to have uh, kind of arms control with with uh, Russia, and, and Russia wasn't wasn't interested with with regards to to non-strategic nuclear weapons and. Uh, uh, you know, it was, you know, let's say, you know, the, the efforts between 2010, 2014, but uh, the, the problem which, you know, we are, we are facing now that, you know, we, we see kind of, a, as you said, you know, continuous expansion of, of Russia's uh, kind of a dual capable system. So like the, for example, the Russian defense ministry stated that the numbers of Russia's kind of a dual capable missiles uh, rose 37 times between 2012 and 2020 and the kind of a Russia plans to double the, the numbers. So, you know, the, the kind of a, the, the numbers of, of uh, non-strategic nuclear weapons around, around NATO would, would, would grow. Nuclear sharing arrangements are, are more a kind of, a, you know, uh, insurance, insurance policy for, for NATO allies than a kind of a bargaining chip in the, in the arms control negotiations. But, uh, but still kind of, a, we, 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 I think that, uh, uh, if in the future circumstances would change and, and there would be kind of a, a, a kind of a reciprocal, reciprocal willingness to, to have kind of arms control dialogue and, and negotiations on, on these issues. I think that the fact that uh, uh, these weapons, uh, you know, are in Europe, there is, there is, there is something I think that, that uh, Russia might be interested in, in, in kind of uh, um, controlling, having, having a look. And, uh, and um, I think we, we, when, when, when it comes to, to arms control, like we like very often tend to think about the kind of a quantitative balance between you know, the weapons that Russia have and the weapons that, that, that uh, are in Europe. But uh, you know, these this weapons you know, have some you know, qualitative value when it, when it comes to and NATO and uh, you know Russia might be kind of uh, interested in in having some some control or or some uh, arms control arrangements with with regards to to these weapons because of qualitative value of of these weapons and I think that we we should have to uh, remember about it. Okay, um, Alex. Uh, three quick points. I think there is a um, nuclear arms control discussion taking place between Russia and, uh, and the United States, which is very interesting. The unfortunate characteristic of that uh, debate is that Europeans actually do not really have a role in there. Which brings me to uh, the, the second point. Let's look at the way that negotiations between Europeans and Russia today are taking place. Huh? The high representative, Josep Borrell, recently went to Moscow. Not a great success. Um, the president of the European Parliament was just declared persona non grata. 
by uh, Russian uh, authorities. The unfortunate situation is that as Europeans, our negotiations with, uh, with Russians on uh, all sorts of matters are really going nowhere. And that is now increasingly setting the stage, not so much for an arms control discussion, but on the European uh, end, we are busy rebuilding uh, forces, also uh, upgrading uh, all sorts of, uh, of, of, of military technologies. Um, and while I'm actually fairly skeptical that um, the, um, the B61 is, is much of an issue uh, therein, the debate on arms control on autonomous systems, uh, that is actually a big one. And given uh, where we are going with, uh, with European defense industrial consolidation, um, the, the defense fund, uh, etc. Um, I think spending a lot of time and care thinking through the risks of, uh, of autonomous weapon systems um, um, uh, development getting out of hand, that's something that we may want to think about uh, for our sake, uh, just as much as uh, for the, uh, the relative relationship we have with, uh, uh, with Russia. Pia, Alexander, and Jacek, thank you so much for what I thought was an extremely interesting debate. Of course, we kind of only scratched the surface. This is absolutely a debate that we need to have in a more transparent way, and I think all of you could agree with that. And yes, I think there needs to be a more open discussion and better education on those topics. And that's kind of as well the, the purpose that we are trying to pursue here at the Hurdy School. So thank you so much for joining us. Bye for now. Be well. And I hope I will see you very soon again.